people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello. Welcome to 12 Rules for What. My name is Sam. I'm joined, as ever, by... Alex, hello. Hello. And we are very happy to be here with uh, Cam and Andy, who are two Australian anti-fascists. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the Australian far right. You can uh, There's a, a great blog, uh, which we will link in the show notes, uh, where you can get a huge amount of information. We'll be kind of like, we've been digging into this over the last few days. Um, we've learned an enormous amount about the Australian far right, its significance for the global far right. And in some, I think, quite interesting ways, its similarities and differences with the British far right. Obviously, the two countries are very closely culturally linked. Um, so we'll kind of be thinking about uh, like the relationship between these two things and Australia's significance for you know, the global far right and um, whether or not it's kind of the source of uh, some of the things that are kind of like flowing around this uh, kind of uh, disgusting milieu uh, that we <laughs> spend our time uh, researching or not. So the first question uh, that I wanted to ask... Oh, wait, the sorry, blog is called Slack Bastard. Sorry, Slack Bastard. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. And so, the radio show is called um, Yeah Now Passaran, um, and you can get it as a podcast as well, I think. So definitely check the, both those things out. So the first question is just a very simple one, kind of a, in some ways like autobiographical, but also obviously, uh, you know, without kind of doxing yourself, how did you guys first start to come up to researching the far right and or be involved kind of more broadly in anti-fascism was there a single kind of trigger did something happen in the australian far right that triggered it or is it a more kind of gradual uh, engagement i guess for me my it was one specific event uh in around 2003 i think it was there was a group in australia called the patriotic youth league who had started uh trying to recruit on university campuses and uh they were we're also doing like postering campaigns around sort of multiracial suburbs in Sydney. And a friend of mine lived in one of those suburbs. He said, yeah, this is a bit off. You got a bunch of little old ladies to go out and scrape all the posters off. It was a good time for had by all, but they also had this website, which was really stupid, if you can imagine. And we thought we could make our own website for them just taking the mickey. And so we, we came up with a, our parody version of their website, uh, which was all pretty silly. But as soon as we put it up, we started getting death threats. And I thought, well, if I'm going to get a death threat for making some dumb joke, I might, maybe I should just get a get death threats for a good reason. And so we started sort of really having a look at who these people were and what they were actually about. Web 1.0, we made our own website to parody another website kind of seems quite antiquated now i think yeah, very old-fashioned and andy you've uh obviously you've i'm a bit much more aware of your uh history just because i've been following you for a, a fair amount of time how did you uh, uh get involved in doing this kind of stuff uh, well i think uh in my case um it probably extends uh a bit further than uh cam so um I guess I, you could say I began to take an interest in uh, politics generally and um, radical politics while I was a teenager. And in Melbourne in the 1990s, uh, there was a group called uh, National Action, 
not to be confused with its uh, UK uh, equivalent. Um, and they were, in the mid-90s, they had set up headquarters in a suburb of Melbourne called Faulkner, around which there was a campaign um, to essentially close it, which was eventually successful. Uh, but also at that time, they were quite active in Melbourne, in various parts of Melbourne, and uh, I guess as a, an anarchist who was um, active during those years, uh, there were a series of encounters, let's say, between um, members of National Action and uh, other neo-Nazi activists at that time. And so it became a kind of, um, you know, a useful thing to do to pay attention to the far right. And then uh, later, uh, along with uh, Cam, I guess, uh, one of the ways in which we uh, expressed those politics at the time was through another uh, website called Fight Them Back, uh, which was launched at the same time as there was a coalition formed between uh, members of similar groups in Australia and New Zealand or Aotearoa. And uh, it was thought at the time that it would be useful for anti-fascists to organise in order to uh, combat this, uh, you know, binational uh, attempt uh, to establish fascist politics or re-establish fascist, po fascist politics in the online domain uh, in the early 2000s. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I've, I guess I've always had a general interest in, uh, you know, political ideologies of one sort or another and uh, was given particular reason to pay more attention to the far right uh, in the, I guess, uh, early to mid-1990s. We want to kind of dig into the history of the Australian far right. Um, in a recent blog post, you linked to uh, an article called The Rise of the Fascist. Um, I can never say this word. Is it cadre or cadre? I want to say cadre, but <laughs> people around me say cadre. It just feels weird. I'm going to go with cadre. Go with the majority uh, opinion. What do you I'm, reckon? I'm with you. You're yeah, with me. Okay, yeah. cadre. We're yeah. going to go for cadre. Yeah. Okay. The yeah. Rise of the Fascist cadre. <laughs> That's how it's spelled. That's how I'm going to read it. Um, Jordan McSweeney uh, writes that there's been a kind of move um, from mass movements to political parties. And then as those two things have failed recently, um, there's been a kind of shift towards constructing fascist groups, um, the fascist cadre. Do you agree with that kind of recent history of um, the Australian far right? What, what can you say about the kind of the, the perhaps the, the far right in Australia since reclaim Australia um, and is that the kind of general tendency that's moved through mass movements galvanizing into political parties those political parties having kind of diminishing returns as they become uh, their kind of stunt making doesn't really transform into electoral growth or anything like that and then a shift into these more kind of hard parties um, extreme uh, movements or kind of non-movements like extreme kind of groupsicles really like um, NSN and so on do you, do you agree with this history or is there something you would kind of add to it or supplement it with? I think it's uh, generally fairly sound. Um, I mean, I think in terms of the recent history with Reclaim and so on, what I witnessed was the um, emergence of uh, dedicated fascists. Um, they emerged as the kind of leadership of this movement. And I guess I'd be somewhat wary of describing it as a mass movement because I think relative to other social movements in Australia, they're relatively small. 
um, but certainly aspire to, you know, develop a mass. And it's also understood, I think, on the part of, you know, uh, convinced fascists that they need some form of their own organisation, you know, call it a cadre, call it what you will, which will act as the kind of essentially a vanguard, a political vanguard that will give political direction uh, to these movements, um, which are often composed of people, I think it's um, in terms of reclaim and also to some extent in terms of the current anti-lockdown movement, there's a lot of people who are um, have been discombobulated by one thing or the other and are seeking direction, but have, are not characterised by having histories of political engagement. So they're relatively ignorant, relatively naive. These characters emerge as um, and present themselves as a kind of vanguard. And that worked uh, for a period of time. I think the, the critical factor in terms of the um, recent history is the reliance upon social media to establish a platform to cultivate a following. And that's that was relatively successful. If you look at the you know, Patriots Front, which consciously styled itself as the vanguard of um, Reclaim Australia, I think it, its peak, it had something like 160,000 followers on Facebook. And some of those would have been from places other than Australia, but many weren't. And it was a very effective tool for propaganda. But to what end? Um, and as the, I guess, the, the stunts kind of... Um, you know, the, the political benefits of engaging those sorts of stunts, you know, they have some benefit, but really the task is to draw, to, to cohere a group, a solid group that can then kind of capitalise upon this sentiment and leave something behind. So there's always this kind of uh, aspiration to build something from popular resentment in a way that leaves behind some kind of trace and can then be used when things become, you know, uh, more favourable to them re-emerging. And I guess the other thing is that um, it was a kind of a loose coalition of um, dedicated fascists and neo-Nazis along with uh, Christian fundamentalists. So there was a certain kind of uh, a very strongly opportunistic angle as well. It was understood that the, at the time, and, and I mean, it's still the case, but at that time there were various um, campaigns going on to, for example, uh, stop the construction of a mosque in a, a rural uh, town in Victoria and various other places across the country and a, a kind of widespread sentiment, which can really only be understood in the context of a, you know, a broader context of, um, you know, the war on terror and uh, the, the attempted criminalization of essentially Muslim life. So it wasn't just the case that you had, you know, small groups of fascists and neo-Nazis agitating about it, but in the, the Australian parliament, there's all sorts of talk about, you know, the problems that uh, Muslims as communities posed to you know, national security and all sorts of other things. So the circumstances were, I think, favourable to the development of these sorts of groups. And what they gave expression to was a, a latent kind of sentiment. And that was what they were trying to capitalise upon and to create something of lasting value, as far as they're concerned, that could carry over after you know, the, hubbub, the hubbub about you know, the Lint Cafe siege, which was December 2014, um, the various other kind of spectacular uh, moments of uh, violence associated with Muslims that they wanted to uh, seize upon and and build upon. And to some extent, there was a kind of, there's always a tension between, you know, mainstreaming, the extent to which these convinced fascists can participate in political parties, can influence them, attain positions as uh, staffers and so on. 
you'll find a similar kind of uh, uh, situation with the initial emergence of One Nation in the 90s. Um, there were, you know, obviously every, uh, you know, radical right-winger uh, flocked to One Nation. He was someone who was, as she portrayed herself, this is Pauline Hanson, you know, prepared to speak on behalf of the common people and express, you know, common sense objections to, at that time in the early mid-90s, was uh, Asian immigration. You know, we need to stop the Asian invasion, as it was called, which, again, echoed the sentiments that were expressed uh, in the 80s uh, by groups like National Action. Uh, stop the Asian invasion was one of their key slogans, and that had some resonance. Um, then, you know, years later, it became, you know, stop the mosque. So there's always this kind of adaptation that takes place on the far right. Um, and I think it would be wrong to kind of underestimate the degree of calculation or the dynamism that's often displayed by these groups and movements. Um, they do seek, you know, popularity. They do want influence. And there's this kind of sense in which they are prepared to experiment with various techniques, forms of rhetoric that are going to uh, provide them with an audience and eventually, you know, um, seek to radicalise them and, and have them actually embrace. This is the broader population that has kind of uh, everyday, let's say, or, you know, average concerns in ways that are amenable to the growth of an actual fascist movement and actual uh, fascist political organisations. Um, and they've met with, you know, some degree of success, I suppose, uh, if you look at a figure like Pauline Hanson, well, that's one. You also have Fraser Anning. Um, but I guess in this context, it's also important to note that the Australian electoral system, which operates uh, differently to the British and others, is um, it relies upon preferential voting. So it's very, it's much more possible for mainstream parties to uh, absorb challenges from minor parties. Um, the real effect, I think, is the way in which uh, agitation on the part of uh, fascist and racist groups can, uh, um, you know, encourage uh, more straightforward expressions of racism on the part of the political mainstream. That's also one of their kind of key goals, the ways, one of the ways in which they attempt to, you know, influence the national discourse. Um, and when that ends, there's always, you know, these sorts of debates always take place on the far right as they do in other, uh, from other political perspectives. You know how important is to is it to compromise one's principles to in order to obtain some semblance of power, and how important is to you no know, stick to one's principles to maintain, you know, uh, a public expression of a commitment to a white nationalist politics, um, and those sorts of kind of debates and discussions happen, and there's a kind of you know a constant back and forth among different groups and individuals about how best to you know. Uh, pursue their politics and to meet with whatever degree of success that they might encounter. I um, might just add about our electoral system that as well as allowing uh, for mainstream conservatism to sort of absorb the anxieties that uh, informed groups like One Nation and sort of peel off that vote, we also do have a little bit of a lucky dip system in that uh, sometimes uh, random parties just get elected <laughs> based on very few votes, uh, which does make things a little bit interesting sometimes. What do you mean, a lucky dip system? It sounds so, an, an absolute mad way to run a democracy. Well, we, we have, that's in the upper house, yeah. yeah we have preferential voting in the Senate, which does allow for minor parties to swap preferences. So you can 
they can give out instructions for if you want to vote for this party, this is how you should vote. Uh, and the way that those preference deals can be structured can sometimes result in someone with maybe sometimes just 10 votes total uh, getting elected to the Senate. Extraordinary. I mean, so the things you were saying there, lots of them are kind of have equivalents in the UK, kind of, kind of approximate equivalents. Um, the UK Conservatives you know, have been also historically very successful at absorbing uh, the far right um, and uh, speaking to their concerns, but not producing a kind of an out-and-out fascist party uh, in doing so. Um, there's also kind of interesting comparisons there between like Patriot Front that you were talking about, maybe like Britain First, has a massive online social following, but have really kind of lacks strategic direction, really kind of lacks a sense that there is any kind of endpoint that can be um, kind of found that you know they're definitely aiming for. Um, do you think there are any realistic strategic endpoints for the Australian far right? Like what? Because in America, for example, uh, you have the presidency, and it's not implausible that you could elect a far right president. And that's quite that's a massive, significant transformation in American political culture. Um, is there something of that scale equivalent for the Australian far right that they are aiming towards or or not? And is the kind of the movement between these different modes of organising um, movements, if not mass movements, um, political parties, cadres, and so on? Like, is the movement between these things because there isn't an endpoint? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think there are relatively limited opportunities, but... I guess what I think about is the kind of broader history and the ways in which the far right, with some exceptions perhaps in the 20s and 30s, which is, you know, almost a century ago, there's been limited space for the development of a kind of white nationalist politics um, to the extent that that informs, you know, most, you know, uh, fascist ideologies in, in countries like Australia and elsewhere. Um, for most of its uh, modern history, uh, the state had an official policy uh, known as the White Australia policy. Um, and in that sense, the kind of uh, grounds upon which a fascist or white nationalist movement or party might develop was quite limited. Um, and that wasn't because there was an absence of those ideas or those um, practices, whether a state policy or, you know, um, in an informal sense, that had already been adopted uh, by the state itself, and there was broad agreement on that. Um, so if you look at the history of the Labor movement and Labor Party in particular in Australia, um, a commitment to white Australia was a, was a core policy. And it was what informed, in many ways, you know, federation when, um, you know, 1901, when the Australian state was formally uh, constituted. And... So in terms of the, the opportunities, um, I, I guess the other thing is that, you know, the, the policy um, of mandatory detention of uh, asylum seekers was introduced by the Labor Party in 1992, I think it was. Um, and that's enjoyed bipartisan support by both the Conservatives, the Liberal National Party and Labor ever since. So the kind of structures, the racist structures governing immigration and so on have evolved over time, but there's been a certain kind of, um, you know, they've remained at the core in many ways of Australian politics more generally. And to the extent that it has, as, you know, in the UK in terms of, you know, Thatcher and the Conservatives, you know, 
uh, absorbing the doctrines of the National Front and, and so on, that's kind of played out in different ways on different levels, as I see it throughout Australian history, which is also very closely related to its status as a, you know, a colonial settler society. You actually got ahead to one of our questions we were going to ask about Australia being a a white settler colony, but just specifically on, because um, the, the one of the key differences for me with Australia and the UK is obviously Australia has an you know an indigenous uh, population which has been you know brutally oppressed and lots of violence done to it over the course of how many years that white people have been in Australia. How does the far right um, uh, talk about in indigenous Australians um, now? Not especially. Not in Boeing terms. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, um, generally, I guess with contempt uh, and with quite a bit of racism, but th there's sort of a, I guess there's a, at certain points within the past, you know, 20, 30 years, uh, the treatment of Indigenous people in terms of trying to address some of the historical inequality has been a, a far-right talking point. So things like funding university places and other sort of things like that have been something they've seized upon, but generally they don't really address the question at all, I've found. Is that because it's like the, the, the like I suppose that the, the battle's already been won, as it were, like there's, there's or... Um... Uh, I guess I'm, yeah, I guess I'm asking, because for the UK, we have this big kind of empire melancholy and empire nostalgia. We used to go into the world and we used to put our colonies down and now we don't do that anymore. And they also, UK also has this kind of uh, thing to fall back on. And this, this is the white man's land, right? This is where all the, all the white men came from. Um, and Australia, there is, this is obviously not, uh, you know, originally where white people came from. So I just wondered how that kind of, is it much more a kind of case of like, we have a right to this land or how does that kind of manifest? I think a lot of the rhetoric you'll see around that would be that we've conquered this land. And so this belongs to us now. You do every now and then see uh, some kooks pop up with this sort of pseudo archeological idea that uh, there were uh, white people in Australia before the indigenous people. And so that Amazing. has a little bit of purchase here. Absolutely, absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. Extraordinary. Um, there's also um, a very min uh, minor, minor currency or tendency, I should say, um, in the history of Australian fascism in the 20s and 30s. It was a literary and political movement um, which attempted to, because one of the things that they were confronted, confronted with was insofar as they were adopting specifically Nazi doctrines about blood and soil, the question became for settlers, well, how do you address the fact that, you know, <laughs> um, uh, there aren't deep historical roots uh, in this territory? And so there was an attempt to reimagine what indigeneity might mean in Australia, which incorporated, um, you know, the Anglo-Saxons or however they wished to conceive of it. And that was, that had some purchase and it did actually, I mean, there's a, there's a few Australian literary figures that kind of engaged in this, and it was an attempt by them to kind of situate themselves as both uh, nationalists and Australian nationalists with, you know, some conception of having some sort of organic 
connection to this part of the world. And so there were attempts to engage with uh, various uh, interpretations of Aboriginal culture, which uh, recast the white man as the Indigenous man in a sense. I mean, that was a kind of a minority tendency, but it was real. Um, in terms of like the contemporary situation, the one thing that springs to mind is that uh, in uh, Sydney, in the suburb of Redfern, uh, of, you know, over the course of the last few decades, there's been all sorts of uh, urban developments, which has essentially resulted in the dispersal of what was at one point one of the largest Aboriginal communities in uh, the country. Um, but that was recast in terms of, uh, you know, the Chinaman is coming to steal your land. Um, and this was uh, intended to appeal not only to, you know, whites, but uh, Indigenous peoples in, in, in Sydney. Uh, it didn't have a great deal of success, but it's, it's the kind of ways in which there's... A, I guess, a, you know, a token acknowledgement, some kind of lip service paid to Indigenous interests. But fundamentally, um, yeah, as Cam said, it's most, the great majority would celebrate the fact, actually, uh, that this land was conquered. Um, if there's any allowance, then there's sometimes ideas floated about, you know, allocating some, you know, not, not quite a concentration camp, but some uh, piece of land that's considered to be of, low utility in the, the centre of the country where to which they can all be, <laughs> in which all the Indigenous peoples can be sent. So, yeah. I mean, it's an intractable problem. And the thing that also complicates matters is that, um, you know, the High Court decision in 92, the, the Mabo decision, um, Eddie Mabo lived in the north uh, of uh, so-called Australia, brought a case to the High Court, made claims under you know, British common law, actually, I can establish that this, not only myself, but my community, uh, it should be recognised, our sovereignty should be recognised. And that was given limited recognition by the courts. It's a long story. Um, but what the High Court, well, one aspect of the High Court decision was that uh, the High Court didn't have the authority. It had to do with, uh, you know, yes, overturning the, the doctrine of terra nullius. So the, the doctrine that informed most of Australian history was the land was empty. <laughs> uh, you know, Indigenous peoples weren't only not uh, recognised as having rights or uh, being parties to some form of treaty. Uh, they didn't exist functionally under the law. And the High Court, part of the High Court's decision was declared, we don't have the authority to make this decision to put in place some kind of treaty-making structure uh, between, uh, you know, sovereign peoples. And that remains the case. So instead, in, in terms of the law, what you have is a kind of degraded notion of rights and sovereignty, which is in, embodied in uh, native title legislation, which is a form of title that gives very limited rights to Indigenous peoples. It's very difficult. Uh, there have been some successful cases brought to the courts where limited uh, forms of recognition and rights to land and waters and their use have been granted by the courts. But ultimately, what's required and what you know, many have, in a sense, demanded is there be some kind of treaty-making process, which has been, you know, unsuccessful. There have been moments in Australian political history where this might have been the case, but they've essentially been uh, shut down by uh, mining interests and pastoral interests. And currently, you know, the, the, in Melbourne and Victoria, the state I live, there's, there's talk about the state government entering into uh, treaty, some form of treaty uh, process with Indigenous peoples in this part of the world, but um, with limited uh, outcomes at 
this point. So, yeah, in general, I'd say that the, and for most of the kind of um, history has been, I mean, you know, it's an awful history, but, um, you know, one phrase that was developed was, uh, you know, the task of the Australian state was to smooth the dying people, uh, sorry, smooth the uh, pillow for a dying people. These people, you know, Indigenous peoples are doomed. Um, And the role of the state in Australian society was to kind of uh, make that process as, uh, you know, gentle as possible. So, you know, the history is, you know, is quite, you know, uh, poor. It's a bit grim. Um, Sorry, Ken? It's a little bit grim. Yeah. There are also kind of comparisons between um, the way that Australian far right has dealt with it and the American far right has dealt with it. Kind of the, you know, the kind of key um, figure perhaps is someone like Madison Grant, right? Who writes this kind of racialist tract, the passing of the great race. Um, and then when he's a bit later on, when he's um, uh, much less important, uh, 19, kind of early 1930s, he writes another thing called The Conquest of a Continent, where he basically makes this very similar argument that the reason why white people who, you know, or Nordics as he calls them, are by which he means basically just English people, Germans, and maybe the French sometimes. Um, the reason why these people are have the right to America and no one else does is because um, of their long history uh, in Ultima Thule, right? Like kind of the the most kind of Nordic, uh, uh, northerly parts of, of Scandinavia and so on. Um, the reason why they have this this is because in those environments they were put up against nature. They were kind of like fought against nature so long that um, the Nordic peoples were kind of forged in the the kind of furnace of nature itself, right? Because of the cold winters and so on and so on. Um, And therefore they have a kind of global right to nature, a global right to command land and so on. It's a massive cope. Um, It's like a very bad argument. And like obviously, you know, kind of absurd in lots of ways, but I think it's 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 a really important one for the kind of the, resolving this question of indigeneity for the global far right especially um outside of europe where uh you know, indigenous peoples uh, have significantly uh clearer claims to uh you know, the land that they live on um so yeah to which i'd say uh you know cool story bro yeah i mean it's it's, uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> the most effective critique is is <laughs> um so We've talked obviously about the relationship between Australia and the UK, um, but as we've kind of frequently alluded to, uh, Australia has ties to American culture as well, or kind of similarities because they're both kind of you know, settler states and so on. Um, and that might be something like the connection with the evangelicals as well. So maybe you could tell us about how you think the far right kind of deals with that history more generally. Um, and how does that develop? How, how does that affect the kind of coalitions of people that are brought together? I mean, you mentioned neo-Nazis and fundamentalists, a religious fundamentalist, which seems a baffling coalition to me. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, you also mentioned people kind of in the anti-lockdown movement who have been kind of discombobulated and uh, definitely has been a lot to be discombobulated about. So how do the kind of the, how do you think the history of Australia affects what kinds of coalitions are produced in Australian politics on the far right? In contemporary Australia? Yeah. Well, I think that in terms of the, I'm thinking specifically of Reclaim and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the EPF, um, it was largely around animus towards Muslims uh, and 
Islam as a foreign invader. So whether it's explicit or implicit, there's an understanding that not only is this a white man's land, uh, but it's a, a white Christian land as well. And so there's hostility towards, um, and, and also uh, framed in terms of a, a defence of Western civilization, which whether, again, explicitly or uh, implicitly is assumed to have certain characteristics, um, you know, white, Christian, uh, patriarchal, and so on. So there's there's a connective tissue. Very often those, like other coalitions, they, they can also tend to be somewhat temporary and opportunistic. So each, you know, um, believes that they'll gain some benefit from this. And, um, you know, uh, I guess in, t- in terms of the, the, the anti-lockdown movement, I think one of the um, tendencies within it, and maybe Cam can speak to this, is that, um, yeah, there's a strong kind of Christian element, which is not, um, which is both, uh, I guess, uh, mainstream Christian, evangelical, and also Orthodox. So there are Orthodox traditions in particular communities in Australia, um, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, Greek or Eastern of one sort or another. And it, it has to do with, I guess, the um, notion or feeds into a notion um, regarding both uh, the origins of the virus, um, its effects, the kinds of measures, public health measures that have been put in place that are understood to be emanating in some sense from communism or their understanding of what constitutes communism and also importantly having a Jewish dimension. So it also tends to bring to the fore the kinds of uh, Christian theology with regards not only Islam but also Judaism and the role of you know uh, the Jew not only in the contemporary uh, sense but in a much longer historical sense. Um, so all those kind of factors are at play. Um, within mainstream politics we've also witnessed you know there's obviously been a, a decline in uh, party political um, participation on so um, you know, the parties have, uh, like other social institutions, membership has declined. And very often what you're left with is a kind of um, a bureaucracy of some sort or a, an official party and various communities that can be mobilised uh, to benefit one faction or the other at any particular point. So recently we have witnessed on the part of the um, LNP attempts to recruit from uh, the Mormon community, various other um, small religious communities that have the advantage, I guess, of being relatively highly structured and relatively dependable um, and having the numbers. So it's kind of, uh, there's, there's branch stacking on both sides of the um, you know, mainstream political equation. And very often uh, on the conservative side, so to speak, um, what's being mobilised are various religious communities and which bring with them a whole range of other um, you know, political and social attitudes with regards, you know, questions of gender and sexuality and, uh, you know, the importance of the family and so on. So there's an attempt to capitalise upon what are some core beliefs and give them a particular political expression. Um, but, yeah, Cam can probably speak more to that. I just wanted to add, regarding the sort of alliance with the United Patriots Front and the, the neo-Nazis and these Christian fundamentalists joining forces, sort of one aspect of that was that uh, 
the UPF, like the, the neo-Nazis within the UPF were engaging in what they would later describe as a, a sneaky Nazi method, which is they knew they were neo-Nazis, but they just thought, oh, we'll put the swastikas away for a bit. Uh, some of the Christian fundamentalists they were getting into bed with were not white, and so it gave them a lot of cover to uh, sort of go out and do things, even though they were sort of holding their nose. But I think they also probably thought it was pretty funny <laughs> that they were doing this. Uh, so ver- very much a marriage of convenience uh, and one that didn't last <laughs> obviously it was it's one of those things that's sort of doomed to fail uh, neo-nazis and non-white christians <laughs> sort of getting along it's not going to last forever yeah in terms of the anti-lockdown movement there's just this huge vein of religiosity that runs through the, the whole thing uh there were was one prominent anti-lockdown activist here in Australia, uh, Fenos Paniades. He was a ex-reality TV show uh, contestant who popped up as sort of one of the, like a car guy. I think you have those in the UK. Maybe like a white van video guy doing a lot of videos in his car. White van man? Is this the yeah. archetype? Yeah, just doing videos in his car, screaming right. into the camera. Yeah. He sort of emerged as one of these guys, very popular, and it was really hard to get a handle on why exactly he was asking so many questions about the virus which was what these they would often do you know i'm just asking questions until he was giving a speech uh, at the front of the parliament here in victoria and he revealed well the reason i'm so animated by all this is because you know my grandfather told me that one day they'll come to put a microchip in your arm and that's what they're doing here and so it was this thing that was in the background the entire time this apocalyptic uh, Book of Revelation stuff that was animated. It animated his entire political uh, energies, and that was not uncommon. It turned out there were quite a few people in this anti-lockdown movement who were coming from a similar perspective of this Christian fundamentalist reading of the Book of Revelation that one day they will come and <laughs> try and stick something in your arm, and it's maybe it's the vaccine. That's amazing. I know, I've not I've not heard that in the UK. That's that's really interesting. Uh, we we mentioned earlier about uh, I think Sam mentioned the NSM, but we didn't actually say what it was because it's a national socialist network, and they are led by a guy who called Thomas Sewell, who first came to my attention when he went on a uh, well properly came to my attention when he went on a UK far right uh, live stream called Patriotic Talk and and called for the rape of police officers in response to child grooming scandals. Um, and he was subsequently uh, removed from another UK Nazi podcast, Tassob, um, with like an editor's note saying this was not their kind of belief. They didn't want to rape police officers, you know, very scared about legal consequences. Um, and that in itself is an ex- <laughs> for even for a Nazi, it's just an extreme, really out there thing to publicly say and call for. And I think he actually, in a next day, he kind of, apologized for saying it on someone else's stream, but then repeated it on his own Telegram channel, something he genuinely thinks. Um, uh, so with this expose that recently happened to the National Socialist Network, they're kind of being exposed as like, got this kind of Brendan Tarrant worship and uh, the kind of idea to reclaim a lot of um, rural Australian properties and start a white settler state in the middle of the white settler state. Um, how much is this expose going to hurt them you think going forward and particularly about Thomas Sewell what what where's this guy going because he seems like he's on a on a spiraling uh, track down into some crazy land 
Well, he's not going anywhere for a little while. He's currently sitting in remand uh, due to some legal issues he's been having. Uh, so he's probably going to be in remand for at least uh, two years awaiting trial. So we I don't think we have to worry about Tom specifically for a little bit, but he has left behind a group. Uh, as you mentioned, they were exposed by 60 Minutes. Uh, they sent a journalist inside the group. He did reveal, I guess, he revealed a lot of stuff that we already knew. Like, if you look at this group and you look at what they, they're about, you know that this is a group that is interested in violence. Uh, you know, it's an inherently violent ideology that they subscribe to. But I guess the difference is that uh, this was the, in public, they would say, no, we're about peace. We're about doing things lawfully. In private, they were not saying that. They were talking very explicitly about how they were going to achieve their ends. And the other big thing that we, of course, learned from this was who all, what all their names were, where they worked. Yeah, I mean, um, again, um, I mean, I, I first became aware of uh, the existence of uh, Sewell along with a range of other characters uh, in 2015, and they were launched into the uh, public by replaying. And at that stage, they were certainly not. In fact, they were consciously disavowing any affiliation with neo-Nazi politics uh, publicly. Uh, privately, of course, it was a different matter. So in terms of the reportage, I think it fairly effectively conveyed what's the reality of a group like this. I mean, it also emerged after the failure of something else that they embarked upon, the Lad Society. Um, and again, this was about building a cadre and not just an ideological cadre, but a, a militant grouping that was training, uh, that was trained in self-defence uh, or, you know, um, in, in martial arts, um, which was associated with and, and actively recruited from um, Sewell as a former soldier, a number of others in the group are former soldiers or gun enthusiasts of one sort or another. Um, and it was an attempt to, this is, I'm referring to the Lad Society, which is another defunct group. They opened up centres in, in Melbourne and Sydney and elsewhere. And really what they were looking to do was to recruit what they would conceive of as being kind of the leading elements within the broader movement and bring them together under their leadership. And, I mean, it's, again, it's a long story in terms of the, the pers particular personalities and the conflicts between them. And, you know, um, I think it was in uh, 1972, there was a book published here in Australia called Everyone Wants to Be Fuhrer, which was uh, documenting the movement in the 60s and 70s and the various battles that were going on between the various personalities as to who would assume uh, the leadership position. So, I mean, that's a common dynamic. Um, I mean, I think the degree of fanaticism expressed by Sewell and some of the others is, is somewhat remarkable. It's, it's relatively rare. Um, and, but I also think it was a conscious decision that they, um, Sewell and others made a decision, now is the time for us to, know, to, to you know, unmask ourselves, to rip off the mask, go public and say, yes, you know, we're national socialists, this is our vision. And also utilising uh, social media, um, now it's Telegram, but, you know, various other platforms. And through that, they're actually, they're able to reach a relatively 
large sort of audience or an audience that wasn't possible uh, some decades ago. And to that extent, they've been able to, uh, you know, in a sense, broaden their appeal. Um, and of course, with regards, um, you know, the kinds of statements that are being made, um, yeah, it does actually create uh, legal issues and those are ongoing for groups in the UK. Uh, at the moment, um, you know, the federal government is in, engaged in a Senate inquiry into extremism. It's possible that it may make some recommendations with regards to changes to the law. For example, uh, you know, outlawing the public display of the swastika, but also um, prescribing groups. So, you know, many of the uh, participants in the NSN previously participated in other groups like Antipodean Resistance that had uh, strong fraternal relations with uh, National Action and other groups in the UK that have now been prescribed. Uh, so there's some talk at the moment about um, prescribing the NSN um, or groups like it. Um, if that were to happen, then of course that would, you know, not be the probably the final nail in the coffin of the NSN, but the exposure um, has, in a sense, up the ante in terms of those who want to participate publicly in the um, uh, propagation of neo-Nazi doctrines. There's a, an added cost to that activity. Um, what effect that has, I mean, for, for Sewell, it, it's caused him, and, and I think he's under some obligation to do so because as the leader, to be even more kind of uh, strenuous in his avowal of, you know, um, Hitlerian doctrines. Um, its effects upon the broader far right. I mean, the other kind of principal white nationalist party in Australia is the Australia First Party, which has been around for, you know, since the 90s. Um, it's been relatively unsuccessful, um, but it continues to be a kind of beacon, I suppose. Um, the problem it experiences is that, you know, it's failed to lower the demographic. You know, the kids are flocking to the swastika, not, you know, the somewhat stale old banner that uh, Dr. Jim Saleem, who's the leader of the group, you know, waves. But on the other hand, I think, you know, Saleem is actually, a, you know, um, more, more serious or um, more uh, educated, more nuanced um, activist. I mean, he had some participation in a Nazi group in his younger years. Um, he's also uh, was imprisoned um, in 89 for, um, uh, he was found guilty of organising a shotgun assault upon the home of an ANC activist in Sydney. He's, you know, still claims that he was framed, but Nonetheless, the courts weren't so convinced, so he went to jail. Um, and there is a kind of, along with the violent rhetoric, there is actually a history of um, sometimes quite deadly violence associated with the far right uh, in Australia, which is it's important not to overlook. And certainly if you take their rhetoric seriously, many of these groups, whether it's, you know, um, performing violence, sexual violence upon police or other forms of violence, um, you know, it's worrying. And... Also, I guess, you know, um, the, the, the massacre in Christchurch has had a, may not have altered substantially much of the discourse in terms of, uh, you know, you, you'll find, you know, well, for example, uh, you know, Lauren Southern, one of her claims to fame was uh, propagating uh, or being an advocate of the Great Replacement. Uh, thesis. She can now be found on Sky News Australia, which is essentially, you know, 
has undergone a foxification in the past few years. So there remain opportunities for um, those on the extreme right to obtain some degree of you know, accept, acceptance on the part of the mainstream. At the same time, she's been forced to kind of uh, disavow those ideas. Others have uh, doubled down. And, yeah, uh, the, the, the killer has emerged as a kind of, in Australia and elsewhere, is, is, is celebrated by many. Um, the extent to which they're prepared to do so publicly is uh, limited. Um, but that's real. And there is a genuine kind of appreciation for his action and the action of those of others who conducted you know, essentially terrorist outrages. So, um, you know, it, it's important to, I guess, situate the NSN, not to exaggerate its influence or its potential, but also not to overlook it. And it's, yeah, it's certainly a group of some concern. The imprisonment of the leader is you know, going to uh, have an effect, as is the exposure. But, but again, as whether it's the UK, the US or elsewhere, what you'll probably witness is the same network being reactivated under a different label, under slightly different circumstances. I think it's also... I think it's also worth noting that uh, at the same time as the NSN was established, they also, for some reason, established a sister organisation, the European Australian Movement, which was supposed to be, you know, the clean face of the group uh, to very little avail. It's, it's all of the same people, all people that have been involved in neo-Nazi projects in the past. And I think the any pretense to not being Nazis lasted about five minutes uh, after Saul went to jail. Uh, in terms of the future of the group, though, one other thing to note is that his deputy is also now on bail in relation to the same incident, and one of his bail conditions is that he's not allowed to talk to anyone else in the group or make any public statements online. So that's going to have an impact on their ability as well, because the, they are not exactly um, overflowing with uh, charismatic uh, leader types. Just on um, Lauren Southern as you mentioned kind of earlier, um, something else Lauren Southern was involved in was Defend Europa, which was this kind of like generation identity thing uh, in the Mediterranean uh, to try and push back migrant boats, uh, basically people who are trying to fleeing uh, conflict and you know, so on. Um, and the slogan they used for that was, no way you will not make Europe home, which, uh, as you will know, of course, is, is taken directly from uh, a campaign run by Scott Morrison, who, when he was head of um, immigration, policy uh under the kind of the operation sovereign borders campaign of course scott morrison is now the prime minister of australia um and so in some sense like that campaign was kind of sourced it's interesting that the australian uh parliamentary right um source uh, is kind of the, the source uh of slogans that are used in uh, openly or not, not openly but like kind of definitely fascist movements uh in in, in europe um Likewise, you know, Australia used uh, offshore migrant centres for a very long time uh, on Pacific Islands, and Pretty Patel in the UK has now kind of proposed this. So instead of, you know, what I'm going to ask here is like, how are anti-migrant state policies and racism in Australian society more generally developed in recent years? And do you think this will have the same kind of, you know, will this provide a kind of a collection of bits for other movements uh, on the far right? worldwide to you know um pick up and use as they as they would yeah i mean uh, the australian state uh, can be understood as being 
um, and and some for some years have argued this that it's a kind of political laboratory for these kinds of um, measures used to control population flows. Um, and the other thing, it's not just the Conservatives or the Australian parliamentary right. This this these policies have bipartisan support. Um, so it's very, in that sense, it's a centrist conception. Um, and there is dissent. Um, I mean, there has been, you know, prior to, uh, there's been a kind of process whereby um, camps have been established in Australia, concentration camps essentially for asylum seekers or refugees, uh, often situated in remote locations. Uh, the former um, base in Woomera uh, was used. Um, I think it was in, uh, when was it? Uh, the early 2000s, uh, there was a, a protest and a breakout from that camp and, and uh, a number of refugees actually escaped from the camp. Most of them were soon um, apprehended. But it's been, it was one of the reasons, I think, or one of the triggers for... Uh, forcing the state to adopt other measures and to locate peoples uh, further distant and in places in, in essentially uh, foreign countries, um, you know, Manus Island, Nauru. Um, and it's been uh, the other important dimension, I think, is the ways in which many of these, this, this infrastructure has also been uh, privatised, it's been rendered profitable for global corporations. So it's not just a matter of, uh, you know, these aren't just uh, state operations. These are, you know, public-private partnerships in um, the construction and maintenance of concentration camps for refugees. And I guess one of the other things that kind of advantages the state in doing so is that they're often in very remote locations. Um, media access is highly restricted. Um, and we also have a very concentrated media. Um, you know, Murdoch is one figure that dominates the Australian media landscape and has for many years. And, you know, is an arch reactionary and his media properties reflect that. And so the, the opportunities that exist for uh, circulating alternative accounts, alternative forms of discourse, other approaches to these matters, um, you know, not um, non-existent, but they're, they're heavily constrained. And it, again, it, it draws upon, I guess, a longer history of the Australian uh, nation state existing as a white outpost in the Asia Pacific, surrounded by, you know, foreign enemies. Um, that also enters into the discourse about you know, paranoia about uh, China, uh, its influence in the Asia Pacific, which is also why that the recent, you know, uh, deal to, <laughs> you know, buy uh, nuclear subs or whatever the story is, um, is kind of important. And, and reflects also the, the, the status. I mean, there's all sorts of debates about this, about the you know, extent to which the Australian state is, is kind of a, merely a handmaiden or a, you know, a sheriff, deputy sheriff in the Asia Pacific of the United States. Um, but that's one of the roles that the Australian state has undertaken since the Second World War, essentially. I mean, that was a pivotal moment in terms of um, Australian foreign relations and a kind of pivot away from being mostly reliant on or an expression of, you know, British foreign policy to American. Um, but that's a whole kind of other, you know, subject. And, yeah, but certainly, 
I guess the other thing I'd say, or the other thing that occurs to me in the context of, you know, Fortress Australia is, uh, yes, in Europe, I think Heath Hilders was one of the um, political personalities who, who championed this, you know, no way, you know. I mean, there's other slogans that kind of express that more directly and less politely. I mean, the sentiment is kind of, you know, understood. Um, there was an attempt to, he was actually brought to Australia to try and launch a, a minor party called the Australian Liberty Alliance, which was uh, established by a, you know, wealthy individual from Perth. And that didn't succeed. I mean, it had some effect, but essentially it was kind of redundant. Um, you know, we, <laughs> Australia doesn't need, you know, here the or anyone else in, in order to construct a racist policy. It's, you know, we do fine. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's uh, pretty grim, but I don't think that the current situation can be really divorced from the historical roots, and that helps to explain why these policies, to the extent that there's any kind of, and there is opposition, why why they why it appeals to so many, and has for such a long time, and and there may be changes in that over time. Um, again, it's you know, it's a sad and sorry record, really. Um, but I guess the, the basic point is that, that there's, you know, reasons why these policies have met with little effective opposition. Really all you can add to the existing policy from the far right is, you know, this idea of closing the borders entirely. And then when they did that, all they did was complain about it. So we've already talked about how Australia has a, quite a militant anti-lockdown movement and in many ways, that might be a response to the quite authoritarian lockdowns that Australia's kind of been engaging in for most of this pandemic, which is startling even looking from, from the UK. Um, just yesterday, I mean, maybe today for you guys, I don't know, the time zones freak me out a little bit. Um, we saw like an attack on like a, a trade union office. Um, and I wondered why, why did specifically trade unions become a, a why, how have trade unions become a target? And... And do you think this, because this is kind of a classic kind of far right, you know, attacking organized labor. Do you think this is something that we're going to carry on? I mean, this, the, the attack that we saw today on the CFMEU, the Construction, Forestry, Mining and Energy Union. I think there's a maritime in there now as well. It was a little bit of a weird situation because there were some far right actors present at the demonstration there were anti-vaxxers present and there, there were other non-unionists present as well. But there were people there who were from the construction industry who did have, I think, a legitimate concern, which was that the, they've just mandated that you'll need to have the vaccine by a certain date in order to work on a job site in Victoria. And for a lot of young people, they're not able to get that vaccine appointment until after that deadline is up. And so a lot of young people are going to be looking at being out of work for at least a few weeks. So there was genuine anger and upset. The extent to which that should have been directed at the CFMEU is perhaps debatable. Uh, the, the other thing though, is that uh, there were people there who were upset that they're going to have to get the jab at all, uh, which is a little less sympathetic. And, but in that case, also the anger was perhaps misplaced because the CFMEU, as far as unions in Australia are concerned, has probably been the most friendly to them. Uh, their sort of perspective was, 
we encourage you to get the jab, but if you don't want to get it for your own reasons and it then becomes an issue for you to go to work, we will fight for you as we would any of our members. And so it did seem a little strange for them to <laughs> protest against that. Uh, so, yeah, very strange days indeed at the CFMEU. What did you make of it, Andy? Yeah, I, I think that was basically the case. I mean, also there's, I guess, in addition to that, there's an identification of um, the leader of the union and the union more generally with Labor and Victoria has uh, a Labor government. So there's a perception that they're both working in order to exclude uh, workers from sites, um, leaving aside the fact that the union and the government and uh, the construction industry as a whole has spent quite a bit of time and energy um, trying to ensure that construction can continue uh, throughout the lockdown. And in that sense, construction is somewhat exceptional. There's a whole range of other industries in which uh, workers have been not only unable to work, but have been excluded from various forms of financial and other support. So I think it was a, a, a convenient target. Um, <clears throat> um, and, and, and to some extent, you know, I, I think attitudes vary in terms of being uh, pro or anti-union, but to the extent that that union and unions generally are associated with uh, the Labor Party, um, the Labor Party in Victoria is, um, you know, and, and Melbourne has, as I understand it, experienced a longer and more intensive form of lockdown than just about certainly any other place in the country, but perhaps even the world. And the other, I guess, underlying factors are to do with the fact that the federal government, uh, which is uh, Tory or Conservative, um, has not, has failed to um, ensure that vaccinations are available to uh, a wide range of people um, and a sufficient number of vaccines are available such that the attempt, and, and vaccination is understood by public health authorities uh, as being a key to uh, winding back the measures that have been put in place with regards restriction on movement and activity. It's understood that having high vaccination rates is a key to the removal of those um, restrictions. And unfortunately, the rollout of the vaccine has been uh, you know, botched and it's taken a very long time, extremely long time for people even to gain access or have the possibility of being vaccinated. So all those kind of underlying factors, I think, I would inform much of the you know, resentment and the anger that's been directed at the union uh, in particular. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how... Um, also in the UK, perhaps, and probably in America as well, um, government failure and the long history of, you know, let's say kind of neoliberal incompetence uh, in, in, in government um, produces these kind of very strange second and third order political effects of um, conspiratorial movements uh, and so on. Um, it seems like the anti-lockdown movement, from what you're saying, is more, let's say, politically grounded than the one in the UK. Um, most of the anti-lockdown movement in the UK seems to be have taken um, 
a fairly kind of spiritualist approach, or at least the kind of QAnon aspect of the anti-lockdown movement has taken a kind of spiritual approach. It's dispensed with some of the kind of political elements of QAnon in America and become more kinds of um, concerned with uh, wellness and health and that's you know, yoga and this kind of thing. Um, I take it that's not the case in QAnon's reception in Australia. Oh, I think what we saw today might be a bit of an aberration. I think the lockdown movement does have quite a lot of that conspirituality incorporated into it. Some of the weird stuff I remember from last year is like a, we saw some people who'd been involved in things like Reclaim Australia popping up, but then they're taking on all of this yoga stuff and talking about, you know, the, the dog moon is rising. It's, you know, the 33rd day of the year just taking it all on holus bolus um so there is this real conspiratorial side to it in terms of QAnon in australia it didn't get a huge purchase here it did a little bit but mainly revolving around you know the save the children sort of angle to it which there was also sort of a local variant of that already existing in the australian sort of conspiratorial landscape which sort of incorporated the QAnon stuff into it as just, you know, this is proof that our thing is real, that this QAnon thing is real. Uh, but I don't think people embraced it quite the same way that they did elsewhere. But just on um, neoliberalism in Australia, I'd also add that um, for anyone who's interested, I'd recommend uh, Elizabeth Humphrey's book, How Labor Built Neoliberalism. Um, which examines the uh, Hawke-Keating uh, government of uh, the early 80s to mid-90s. And what's interesting about neoliberalism in Australia is the key role that the Labor Party had uh, in implementing its um, chief doctrines in terms of state policy. Thank you. Also, what you were talking about, uh, but just before the way that governments responded to the pandemic and the sort of contradictory ways they responded to it really fueled quite a lot of conspiratorial thinking. So I think we have the same thing as in a lot of countries where when there were not enough masks to go around, really, uh, the science was that masks are not effective. And then when we had enough masks, suddenly they became effective again because you weren't going to have this massive problem. Uh, that has caused much of an issue that they said something that they probably knew was not quite true when they said it. Uh, things like when they first locked down in Australia, uh, this, the, the advice was to lock down on the Friday. They ended up locking down on the Monday, uh, which in the end probably didn't amount to a lot. But if you look at that and say, well, why did they do that? Oh, it must be because yeah, they know it's not real, so it didn't matter. What was actually happening was that there was a, an evangelical conference on that weekend that uh, is very closely connected to the Prime Minister. Uh, it would have been a bit orcs to cancel that, so they let it go. But if you don't have all of the information, then a lot of these decisions seem very weird, and that drove quite a lot of conspiracy. Yeah, for sure. That's that's there's a really kind of important dynamics. The uh, conference is a bit uh, kind of particularly strange uh, connection to have. Um, thank you so much, both of you, for being here. Thank you, Cam. Thank you, Andy. Um, go and read Slack Bastard. It is uh, a really great um, uh, resource for thinking about the Australian far right and 
the Australian far right's place in the global far right and go and listen to Yen our pass around as well. It's a really great resource as well. Um, thank you. Any final thoughts? Um, thanks very much for having us. Um, I'm really looking forward to reading uh, the uh, next book on uh, ecofascism. Yeah. Um, well, so, I, so am I, because I've got to uh, submit the proofs today. So, uh, <laughs> cool. Uh, just a final thought. If people are interested in the history of Australian fascism, so the book that Andy mentioned earlier, Everyone Wants to Be Fuhrer by David Harcourt is quite a good read. Uh, there's also, I guess, a sort of companion piece called I Was a Teenage Fascist by David Greeson, which is about a young man from the UK who moves to Australia and then sort of um, gets a copy of Everyone Wants to Be Fuhrer and sets out to meet everyone in it, basically, as he goes on his journey to becoming a teenage neo-Nazi in Australia. And it's quite an interesting read if you're interested in that sort of thing. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to plug? Twitter handles? <sighs> no? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, go for it, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> uh, all, all complaints uh, at Slackbastard on Twitter. And <laughs> if you've got any, anything nice to say, you can tweet at me at Sexenheimer. Fantastic. Thank you so much, guys. And I'll see you racing. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can go over to Patreon, where we now have a whole bunch of more premium episodes and essays and other things like that. We're also starting a book club for people who want to get more into this stuff. You can read along with us. We'll talk about it. We'll have regular Zoom calls. It'll be great fun. And on the higher tier, we'll even send you a copy of our two books when they drop. That's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what. All the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project. And thanks a lot for listening again and I'll see you very soon. What's up, y'all? I'm Pearson, host of Coffee with Comrades. Coffee with Comrades is rooted in militant joy. Our hope is to cultivate a warm and inviting atmosphere, like walking into your favorite coffee shop to sit down with some of your close friends and share a heart-to-heart conversation. New episodes premiere every Tuesday, so be sure to smash that subscribe button wherever you get your podcast so that you never miss an episode. We are proud to be a part of the Channel Zero Network. Twelve rules. 